Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and every week we share trending topics in the wine world with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Every week, myself and my partner in wine crime, Mark, discuss trending topics in the wine world and things that people want to know about, all about wine. And we love to do our own research and Google a bunch of things in the course of our day, in the course of our business. So, uh, Mark, you're the one who loves all these websites and search engines. So what did you Google this week? This week, Kim, I had to look up a certain soil that I always hear and I've, Ooh, never, I've never researched. Yeah. See, Kim gets all excited. Like, <laughs> I love the science stuff. You know, dirt. But anyway, Kim, I know you've heard the name of this winery, Obsidian. Ooh, I like right? Obsidian. But yes. I've always heard the term of as far as the winery. I never associate it with the soil. There's actually an obsidian soil. Huh. And it's, it's volcanic glass, right? Exactly. You saw my thunder. <laughs> Sorry. See, I had to Google it. Kim already <laughs> knew the formation of it. So it is, it's a rock formed as natural glass by the cooling of lava from volcanoes. And it's a black, it looks like a black piece of glass. It's really cool looking. And it really this is. winery grows its Cabernet in obsidian rock huh. soil. So. I don't think I've ever seen obsidian referenced as a soil type or as, you know, well, something that's winery, a part. Right? I've seen, I mean, I've heard of the winery. I guess I just didn't make the connection that that I, could I'm be something with their soil. Only, I've never seen anyone else, like you said, market it. Mm. And, you know, it never dawned on me. That's why they named the, yeah. the winery. Well, we talk a lot about volcanic soils these days. Like that's sort of a, a hot topic for people who geek out about different types of wines and flavors and wines. So places that have volcanic soil and that are producing producing wines around, think about different islands, Mount Etna in Sicily immediately comes to mind, a lot of other places that have volcanic soil, but I haven't necessarily associated that with specifically obsidian soil. So I think that's really cool. Interesting. Very. So what about you, Kim? What did you Google this week? So I was doing some research on different uh, blends of wine. And red blends are a, a really hot category right now, whether they be blends that are on the drier side, like Bordeaux, or blends that are a little bit on the sweeter side, like something like Apothic or Jam Jar. And there are a lot of these wines out there. And we've sort of always thought about blends in terms of reds, but there are a lot of white blends out there as well that people are a lot less familiar with. So I wanted to do some research into white blends from California to kind of get a little bit of an idea of what is out there, what are the, what flavors are in these wines, and what their food pairings could be. Are we looking at certain price points? Not really. Magic um, price point for no, a white blend? You know, it's interesting because they sort of run the gamut. You know, a lot of the sweeter ones are a little on the less expensive side. I think partly because they do appeal to a little bit more of a casual drinker or a novice drinker, but then you can get up to things that are, are really quite expensive. And the whites are a little bit harder to lay your hands on, and some of them do start at a slightly higher price point. So I think that makes it sometimes a little bit of a difficult category for people to get into. You know, if the starting bottle is $20 or $25, $25 a bottle, that makes it a little bit uh, a little bit more intimidating, 
I think. What would you say the first white blend was you ever tried? Oh my goodness. I don't think I can think back that far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, they just don't seem very popular. There, yeah, there you know, are far fewer of yeah, them. No one's coming to look for a white blend. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the original is a Bordeaux, white Bordeaux. Yeah, and that's what I've been drinking a lot of recently. I feel like they go really well with the particular kinds of foods that I like to make at home. So we've been drinking a lot of different white Bordeaux blends. But there, there certainly are things from other places as well. So, you know, California kind of is the first one that, that my mind goes to. While we're on the topic of wine trends, and we do talk about beverage trends in general a lot, we've been seeing more and more kind of this emphasis that people are placing on healthy beverages, lighter beverages. Certainly the whole spiked seltzer phenomenon is still going strong. And now there is a new product that is hitting the market that we wanted to talk about because it is related to wine and it's not spiked seltzer, but it is Wine water. Wine water. Any wine water in your store yet, Mark? No, no, (laughs) no. Just no wine gummies either. Oh, you know, I've had wine gummies. We have to talk to the listeners about and water that's infused. It gets the flavor from discarded wine grape skins. Correct, Kim? Yep. So it's infused with the pumice, so the leftover stuff after all of the juice has been pressed out of the skins and the seeds and some of that pulp that remains. I mean, it's an interesting concept because you get the health benefits of the grape, no alcohol, and it's marketed as wine flavors, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Interesting, not... I don't know. Um, I haven't had one yet, but I can see it as a interesting natural flavoring for water. We certainly like to, you know, soak fruit in water or add a little dash of juice to our uh, sparkling water and make something that's refreshing and a little bit more on the healthier side. These don't seem to have a lot of added sugar, but will still be sweet because a lot of them are using stevia. So that stevia plant produces a sweetener that's more sweet than cane sugar, but is supposed to be a little bit better for you. It doesn't taste exactly like cane sugar, but I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting use of leftover fruit product to, uh, you know, to make something different. So are you a flavored wine i mean flavored water person in general um yeah you know i feel like we we do uh try to keep the sparkling waters with some flavors around the house it's good to keep something extra that tastes a little bit different and keeps you hydrated and doesn't add a lot of extra sugar see i'm not a flavor or like a fizzy water guy Mm, i like fizzy water you know you like flavored waters you don't seem too excited about wine water and you're a wine person so it does nothing for you. I, I don't think it does. I'm not getting super duper excited about it. And I think they're, I mean, they're playing on the name. So the producer was Napa Hill. So they put Napa in the name and they had four flavors. Cherry Rosé, right? Was it Cherry Rose or Rosé? I think it I, must be Rosé, right? Rose. Peach Pinot Grigio, Lemon Chardonnay, and Pinot Berry. So I'm wondering what other flavors they're adding to this because there was no other mention about other flavorings being added, but there's not a whole lot of uh, peach flavor generally in your Pinot Grigio. So I uh, I wonder where they're getting those flavors from or if it's just a marketing angle. Well, it didn't say they're not using any flavor additives, right? They just said about the sugar mm. type. So maybe they just conveniently left that out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this was an article from the Washington Post, by the it's way. It's like three bucks for a bottle. I think they might get a niche of people who they want to, they're dying for a glass of wine and hey, I'll, I'll pick up this I can't imagine this tastes water. very much like wine though. It would be interesting to try and see if it does taste like wine. I'm not really that big of a fan of stevia, so I'm not sure that I would take to it just 
just because I don't tend to like the flavor of that sweetener. But aftertaste type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. All of those artificial sweeteners. um, And I understand that stevia is a a natural product, but I don't know. I can't get past um, the flavors of them. So it did mention. My super sensitive palate. And they did mention, they compared the flavor to when you put ice in your wine. (laughs) Mm, So watered down wine. So very, to me, that means very little flavor and just watery, right? I mean, which is interesting. And did you see also, Kim, lately, I think it was, I want to say it was Walmart or someone else came up with this flavoring. It was like rosé flavoring mm-hmm. that you can add to your water. So now they're making like oh, okay. packets of Kool-Aid you can put in your water that are themed Prosecco, rosé. So I think they're kind of playing on yeah, this. That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's such a, a hot topic and segment of the market. Rosé stuff is kind of everywhere. So that doesn't surprise me in the least. Oh, it's interesting. So you think that the the pumice that they're using to make this water is probably the same thing like when they make grappa in Italy. They're taking the leftover stuff mm-hmm. to make something out yep. of it, right? But there's just no fermentation going on. So this isn't the stuff that's left over after fermentation has taken place. So that's why there's no alcohol. So you just get, it's like... The stuff so, they're feeding to the pigs. Pretty much. Right? I mean, it's like if you, you know, smushed up a bunch of apples and you took <laughs> all the juice out and then you added extra water, you get a little bit of an apple flavor to it, but not technically apple juice. So that's what they're doing here. So, I mean, there's less flavor left in those exactly. grape skins. So. Yep. so it's just lightly flavored. And uh, hey, you know, if it's a success, that's great. If it's uh, just a way to creatively use the leftovers from winemaking, I think that's great too. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. To find our past episodes, please find us on iTunes or SoundCloud and send us messages on our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about an article that was in Paste magazine. It was uh, entitled Saki for Beginners. And Kim, Saki is wine. We want to tell our listeners. And we did in the past talk about Saki as far as wine lists, I believe. But for me, this is this is a topic, Saki, that can be very, very technically geeky, let's say, about the process. But with the styles, never mind pronunciation, but this article kind of broke down in kind of simple terms and you had your own take on breaking it down even simpler for all this. So I think sake can be very intimidating for people because it is a very different style of beverage. It doesn't have the acid levels that wine does. So you don't have that brightness and that lift and that refreshing acidity to it, you know, kind of like thinking about having a glass of lemonade and you have that refreshing feeling in your mouth. Mouth. And a lot of wines feel that way. Uh, but sake does not because it doesn't have a lot of acidity to it. And it's made from rice. So the flavors are going to be different. It's a little bit more akin to beer than it is to wine because the ferment it's the fermentation of a grain as opposed to the fermentation of a fruit. But a lot of the process is similar. And a lot of the way that we approach talking about it and tasting it and describing it is very similar to wine tasting. So I think that that's one of the reasons why wine and sake sometimes go hand in hand is because we, you know, we like to use a lot of similar terms when we, when we describe the, the two different things. So here's my basic, mm-hmm. what I always say, basic sake, Kim. It's, it's higher alcohol. It's made with rice. And the quality of the rice is based on how, it, how much it's polished. And that equals the different grades of sake. Is that Correct. basically... 
the quickest thing you could say yeah, about... Yeah, that's pretty much the, the basics of it. So it's a particular type of rice that is used and they will wear away the outer layers. And at the closer that you get to that more pure bit of rice in the center of the grain, the better and the more high quality the resulting sake is going to be. So a couple of different levels of quality uh, that are always talked about when we talk about sake. The highest end ones are either called ginjo or dai ginjo. Oh, it's so good, Ken. Thank that you. Was so good. Uh, and there, there are certain sakis that will have other things added to them. But if you want a sake that is at its most pure, meaning it's only made with uh, rice and water and yeast and this particular mold that goes into sake production, you want to look for the word junmai because those styles of sake only contain those ingredients. So you're getting just the flavor of the fermentation and just the flavor of the rice and a little bit more of a, a pure product. So let's talk, Kim, about this, the Japanese traditional sake, and then there's what I call the, the consumer scam, well, I don't want to say scam, trick, where a lot of the sake you see on the shelves are in restaurants is actually made in the United States. Right. So is it Oregon or California? Oregon, I forget. Yeah, yeah the there's producer. a lot of West Coast I think it's production. Geki, is it Geki Khan? Yeah. And a, the, one of the first questions that I always get from people when I start talking to them about sake is, oh, are you supposed to drink it warm? You're really not. The better sakis do taste better with a slight chill on them. So treat them as if they were white wine. Just like any other alcoholic product, when you add heat to it, you're going to start getting things evaporated evaporating out of the product. So whether it's the alcohols that start to evaporate out or a lot of the aromatic uh, components of it start to evaporate out. And it's especially that alcohol. It, when you warm up sake, you really get just a nose full of alcohol. And I think it makes it a little bit harsher. So for those better sakis, those ginjos and daiginjos, those really are meant to be served chilled. And they are a little higher in alcohol, like Mark said. So you don't really generally drink a lot of them. You tend to have pr pretty small cups of it. And I like them. You would. Of course. Yeah, it's an acquired. It's an acquired. <laughs> it is a bit of an acquired taste. Tasting. It's very product. yeasty. the The fruit aromas and flavors are more subtle than they are in wine. And then you're right. It, it is a little bit of an acquired taste. But once you get used to them, then you start to figure out which flavors you like a little bit better and and which producers and styles. So there are sake sommeliers, which we've done an event in the past where a sake sommelier explained sake to our our wine club, and Kim would love this she knows there's sparkling versions of sake which uh are really good i, I like the sparkling i like versions. the sparkling ones too um and there's also another particular style that is a cloudy version of it um so think of those cloudy beers that have the sediment on the bottom of them there are sakis that are the exact same way they're called nigori they leave the sediment from the fermentation on the bottle bottom of the bottle and when you shake it up a little bit it gets this hazy cloudiness to it and it almost feels sort of chalky when you drink it it's very interesting but i think that adds a sweetness to it as well and makes it a pretty interesting beverage. I'm glad you mentioned beer because a question for you would be, is sake a better beverage to convert beer drinkers to than wine? It is closer to beer. You know, people always call sake rice wine, but I think it's more rice beer. Because you always see things where how to convert a beer drinker to wine. Yeah. So maybe I'm thinking the step is introduce them the to... Sake sake and then to wine maybe but the, the alcohol level might get in the way of that a little bit more i mean beer drinkers usually yeah, are shock, used to right? you know five or six percent a lot of these are closer to 17 18 percent so they can uh 
they can sort of sneak up on you as far as their alcohol level goes. What about this? Is sake a better pairing partner than wine, do you feel? No. You're great. I'm glad we agree. It's just, it doesn't but have as that many could, options, That could just maybe. be my, you know, my biased Western mentality. Uh, sake <laughs> sommeliers turning over right now. They're mad. Yeah, that's okay. But yeah, um, I feel like it's kind I'm of willing, limited. I'm willing to have my, my mind expanded when it comes to sake and food airings. A lot of people, you know, immediately would be like, oh, I'll have sake with sushi. But that's actually not really technically the food pairing that you should be doing. That's too much rice. And I know that traditionally sake does not go with sushi. It goes with those other things in uh, in Japanese cuisine, or it's really meant to just be sort of drunk on its own. So I don't think it was ever really meant as something to go with food. We tend to think of the European mentality of wine with dinner, uh, whether you're French or Italian or Spanish, you know, wine is just a natural complimentary beverage for meals, but sake doesn't really fit that niche. So it's, it's more more as a beverage to consume kind of on its own in more social settings and not necessarily something that has traditionally been made to go with food. Yeah, but there, there are a lot of different profiles of sake oh, that yeah. we, we could yeah. play around with. Um, what about this, Kim, on, on your wine list at Legals? Any sake on the list? One of our restaurants does have a few sakis on the list. Um, I believe it is the one at Harborside. And and they're, they're pretty nice. And I actually think that sake goes great with seafood. It's one of those things that I really like with fried food as well. So that is something that I think makes a particularly nice pairing. But it's not on, on very many of the illegal seafoods lists, no. I have like a retail observation. I, I find that the customers that are buying sake, I never see them buy wine. Hmm. What else are they buying? I've never seen them buy... Like Just sake. If they buy sake, I never see them buy wine. Hmm. So I wonder if, if people are one way... You know, they, they're not... Yeah. They I like don't know that there's a lot of crossover wine. between wine drinkers and sake drinkers. I don't drink a lot of it at home. Um, I used to drink a fair bit more when I worked for a distributor and we had a fairly robust sake portfolio and there were a lot to talk about and there were some really nice sakes in there, but I don't ordinarily drink them all that often anymore. Do you remember when you worked retail, it was a big store, What? how many would you say skews were there of sake? Mm. We had quite a few. I want to say we had... More than 10, more yeah, than Yeah, like 15, yeah. Wow. maybe. So that, I mean, that's huge. That's yeah. what I find in retail is there's not many places you can go and find true sake. Mm-hmm. You, you can find the American bulk, you know, big bottles. And it's hard to because if it's a product that people aren't buying, but still has sort of a short shelf life, sake doesn't last as long as wine does. So um, it is a little bit more of a delicate product. So if you've got something that's been sitting on the shelf for a couple of years and then somebody buys it, they might not be getting the best taste experience because it's a little bit older. It's amazing too. Like you were talking the other levels, the the prices can be like fine mm-hmm. Bordeaux. They, they can be up there. Yeah. And I'm always amazed that people, when they ask if you have sake, they're amazed. Whoa, what do you have? Like, yeah. So it's not really common to be seen out in the market, I think, in in retail like it used to be, maybe. Well, this is making me want to, you know, maybe have a glass of sake the next time I go out to a restaurant that has one on their list. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com and more about Mark at franklinliquors.com. Another story from the world of wine that we've actually been following for a couple of years. There was a case that was brought, a legal case that was brought against some California wineries last year or the year before, saying that a number of brands and wines were showing high levels of arsenic in their wine and that those were dangerous and should not be on the market and bringing suit to get those those things recognized and, and off the market. And now come to find out the most recent information that is coming down to us is that 
this was not arsenic that came into the wines from the soil, but that maybe was added intentionally to either improve the aroma or the color or something, which is crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Time flies, Kim, because I thought it was two years ago, too. Yeah. And then I was researching it, and the original story broke in 2015. Oh, wow. Five Imagine years that. ago. It seems like it was just yesterday. It felt like it was just a couple of years ago. Maybe that's just when we when we started to hear about it. And a group found that they did some testing. They found uh, arsenic traces in certain brands, a lot of big brands. It led to a lawsuit, like a class action lawsuit. And the, the judge threw it out, I think, 16 or 17 threw it out. So this story came back again, like you said. And when I was pushing the story on social media feeds, people like, oh, this is old news. This is old news. I'm like, well, no, it's still a valid thing that people should be aware of. So I was researching arsenic itself. It's a, a natural occurring element, which trying to find out, everyone hears it, like you freak out, right? But like you said, a big part of it is from water. It's in water. And when you think about the brands they were mentioning in the in the lawsuit, they use way more water than traditional wa- uh, wineries. So to me, it kind of made sense that the it was wineries themselves use more water like for irrigation yeah bigger well when they're producing they have bigger maybe added i'm thinking adding things that are touching more water Mm -hmm. that was kind of my thinking on it and why it was dismissed they were saying there was no it was a trace amount it had no real health risks so it was within 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 like a government limits of arsenic so and the the wine industry basically said it was absurd uh, and then the judge agreed and it was kind of thrown out so what do you think uh arsenic in general kim concerned <laughs> I, would, I would be concerned about drinking it but what i mean what struck me at reading those original articles was when they listed the wines that they found these traces of arsenic in is that they were all inexpensive they were all bulk producers they were all slightly sweet and they were all generally white or blush And a lot of the chatter about how did this get into these wines, they were originally saying, oh, well, it's from the soil. Like, "Mm, if it's from the soil, why is it only hitting these specific styles of wine? So this doesn't surprise me that maybe it had more to do with something that happened during winemaking, whether it was from overwatering or something in the water or whatnot. But I just I thought that it was a little sketchy that if it was found in the soil that it wasn't hitting a, a wider variety of wines well there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there Kim, <laughs> because you mentioned of the 83 wines they were all like big huge brands corporate brands so they're saying it's linked it the link seems to be not the soil not what but the big companies what what are they doing mm-hmm. and they actually had an independent lab test these wines and it, they said the levels were 500 percent more than they should be and they're still saying number one that's an acceptable level and number two that it's it's okay so i i don't know if if this you know are the are the big guys too powerful it's almost like one of those things like the uh the corporation that's you know saying making them say it's okay Hmm. but it's it's interesting i wish there was some way you know we could compare that or, or saw a comparison to these 83 brands to this brand, why is it so different? I think I if we, I mean, we can't really get to the root of the issue. You know, we don't know the why or the how. 
for this. So I just I think know. it's funny people think okay, sort of it's no just big shrugging deal. their shoulders. Yeah, no, like, oh, it's five hundred times the level yeah. of arsenic well, that should be allowed, but it's okay. It's probably because maybe they're not drinking those. But imagine if you're drinking, but somebody that is. all the time. Yeah, somebody's know? everyday wine. That's a lot of everybody's everyday wine. The other thing I was thinking on this, Kim, is maybe this element is from something else that's legally an additive, right? So it's this is secondary? Secondary mm-hmm. to something else that's being additive, a byproduct of something that after fermentation turns into arsenic. And it's only being used chemist, but, uh, in inexpensive bulk commodity, slightly sweet white wines? Yeah, hmm. in, in rosé wines, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Could be. That's my conspiracy theory behind <laughs> it. We're, now we're gonna all gonna get sued, or if we get run off the road or something, <laughs> this is why we're putting down the big companies. Oh, right we're now. just the little guy. Yeah, but uh, it is. I mean, it's a health thing. People who can't, you know, want to look at things. Uh, and I, and the list was huge in big brands, big big brands. So I'm not worried about it because I don't really drink any of those brands. But we thought the listeners should know this was a story that's been out there for years now. Time is flying, Kim. Right. Thought it was yesterday. So Google arsenic and wines for that full list of these wines and do a little bit research on your own if this is something that you would like to know more about. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We'd love any questions or comments you have about the show. You can also find our past episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud. Cheers. Wine, wine.